Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, David Mann. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, good morning. Of course, it's a pleasure to be with you another Saturday morning right here. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. This is the Pass Ball Show. ton of stuff to get into today. Of course, a reminder to tweet at me at John underscore PLE as we keep the program interactive. A lot of different topics I want to touch on. I want to talk about a couple old timers from way back in the day. Uh, one in the 1800s and one in the early to mid part of the 1900s. I also want to speak a little bit about the Subway Series and my opinion about it. But first, what we're going to do, what we always do right here in the past ball show, is play an interview I recorded this past week uh, with a guy who received the 1986 World Series ring with the New York Mets. He only got new a couple games that year, would later on serve as a backup catcher to Gary Carter. In 1987 through 1989, ended up making a comeback in the year of 1995 with the Chicago White Sox, where he played the latter part of his career after battling back, getting himself back to the big leagues, after serving a little time playing in the minors. And that, of course, is Barry Lyons. And Barry, a little personal memory, I remember the first Mets game that I ever attended. Um, I believe it was August or September of 1989. And Barry Lyons was part of a ninth-inning comeback when they came back against San Diego Padres and Ed Whitson. Uh, he had a hit in that uh, ninth inning. I believe he was driven home by Kevin Elster on a walk-off double. And, uh, you know, at the age of nine, kind of uh, allowed me and uh, the rest of the people who were with me to come home happy that day. But here it is, a nice, uh, you know, interview I recorded with Barry Lyons. And Barry ended up going through some tough times as he talks about um, later on, he was a victim of Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and ended up wiping out his home. And he lost many of his possessions, including his World Series ring. So we all get into that. And hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with a guy that's been through a lot. And you hear he ends up getting into some really good stuff towards the end of stuff that he's working on now. And uh, really good news to share with me and the past ball show and everything going on with that. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League catcher Barry Lyons. Good afternoon. I'm joined right now by former Major League catcher Barry Lyons. Barry, this is John Pielli over in New Jersey. I appreciate you having a couple minutes. 
Right, if you can, how about uh, share you know a couple couple memories of maybe your earliest uh, recollection of baseball when you were a kid. You know, were you were you a fan of baseball as a kid? This is something that you know maybe you learned to play at a young age. Tell us a little bit about your earliest baseball memories. Well, I was the uh, born the youngest of four boys uh, to uh, loving parents, came up in Jermaine Lyons and. And my brothers were all uh, outstanding athletes and uh, good students and and good people. Uh, so I had uh, role models within my own home. And I was, as I said earlier, the youngest, uh, eight years younger than my oldest brother. But baseball was something that I was passionate about from a very young age. My dad coached all my brothers in uh, the youth program uh, up until they were 12, 13, 14 years old, and uh, they were outstanding uh, players and uh, achieved a lot of uh, success on the field, and uh, I was inspired, and as a young man, a young boy, that is, I had a dream to be a major league baseball player, and by the grace of God and uh, a lot of hard work and a, a lot of good breaks and uh, a lot of teachers and coaches and instructors and teammates. Uh, I was able to live that dream. So baseball was very important to me from a very young age. Something that I was very passionate about uh, from day one. No, exactly. And, uh, you know, 1981, you were originally drafted by the Tigers, and you didn't sign that year. Was that just a decision where you just wanted to further your education, or you just didn't feel you were ready yet? It was a combination of things that led to that decision. Uh, one, I did want to go back. I had one more year to complete my uh, Bachelor of Business Administration degree. Two, I had uh, an injury uh, with a broken bone in my hand that cost me about a month of that junior season. And uh, I did not have the type of season that I anticipated. Uh, I was drafted in the 25th round. and. Uh, I had a long talk with my mentor and college coach, Dave Bruce Ferris, the former Red Sox great back in uh, the late 40s, and a pitching coach for the Red Sox in the 50s. And he was uh, a father figure to me and, and, uh, and my college coach, but also a dear friend. And uh, all of those things combined uh, made made it really easy to make the decision to forego the offer from the Tigers, go back and uh, have a senior uh, a year to remember, and I was able to do that. Uh, our team uh, won a regional championship, went to the Division Two College World Series, uh, and finished third in the nation, and I was drafted 10 rounds higher by the New York Mets, and... Uh, uh, it was a, a decision that I, I know, uh, looking back, God had his hands on it, and, and uh, I am blessed and thankful that I made that decision at that time. With my experience with the New York Mets, I wouldn't trade for anything. It was a, a treasure that I will always cherish. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League catcher Barry Lyons. Now, you know, during your time with, with the Mets, you know, you had a chance to play for some very good team. your teams. You were surrounded by some very good talent, and, you know, at both the, the A-level, double-A, and triple-A levels, uh, you were on teams that, that won championships. It must have been uh, pretty exciting to be part of, uh, of, of good teams pretty much coming up and through the system. Yeah, 
John, uh, the med system uh, as a whole during that time uh, in the early 80s was stockpiling great talent, uh, you know, incredibly uh, uh, talented players. And, and uh, you know, the focus uh, was on winning championships at the minor league level, which sometimes, uh, you know, you hear some organizations say they're not that interested in winning, it's about development. But, you want your player to be a winning player and a championship caliber player uh, at the major league level. I believe it's important that uh, they learn how to win championships uh, in the lower levels. And certainly the Mets were very uh, emphatic about that. Uh, the talent levels of all those players was uh, very, very high. And the expectation to win was, was uh, rampant in our, in our clubhouse. And, and we had guys that wanted to win above all else, and, and, and we had team players and uh, great talent. It was fun. Uh, we won a championship in the Carolina League, uh, I think three or four years running, the Mets system did, and I was uh, involved in that. We won uh, the Texas League Double-A Championship uh, on a few occasions, and I was blessed to be a member of the 85 uh, Texas League champions. And, they also won uh, Governor's Cups or AAA championships through the years, and, and uh, I was able to be a part of that as well. So uh, learning how to be a champion ball player doesn't happen by, by accident, and uh, I think the Mets really had uh, an amazing organization from top to bottom back in the uh, early 80s all the way through the early 90s, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know that that's the case anymore, but uh, that 10 year stretch from, uh, say, 1981 82 to 1991 92, I think, was uh, an amazing stretch for the Mets organization. Yeah, no question. If I could ask you, Barry, or during that time in the minors, if you had to name one player that you played with during that time that you felt that there was no doubt that they were going to be an answer to that would be Bob Goodman. Uh, he made briefly in Lynchburg uh, the year that, that the only full season that Doc pitched in the minor league. So uh, obviously uh, that would be an easy answer. I never played with Darrell in the minor league, but of course Dale Strawberry was uh, destined for greatness. Uh, but there were just so many. I mean, you had have, have Roger McDowell, I played with Rick Aguilera, Randy Myers, uh, just to name a few pitchers, uh, Dave Magadan, Kevin Elster. Uh, all of those guys were teammates of mine at one point during my minor league career. And, and they're all were very good friends and, and to, to this day and still are. But uh, the organization as a whole, uh, had a, an abundance of talent, and we had great coaching staffs uh, and pitching coaches, especially that uh, really, uh, you know, taught us how to play the game uh, and and how to win. And, and winning was the utmost importance. Uh, but being a team player was certainly uh, a key key part of being a New York Met during that time frame. 
No question. Once again, John Fiali here with Barry Lyons. Now, you know, as, as you're moving yourself through the system, like you just mentioned, you know, having success at every level, getting a chance to play with a lot of exciting young players that you know at some point are going to be good major league players, uh, some, something ends up happening. Now, if you look back in the history of the New York Mets, the trade for uh, future Hall of Fame catcher Gary Carter uh, was known as a very good day in the history uh, of the New York Mets franchise. But for a young catcher, that's looking to move himself through the system and eventually uh, become a major league catcher, it, it probably provided a little bit of a roadblock. Um, did, did, you see, did you see it that way when the Mets acquired Gary Carter being a young catcher trying to get to the next level to the major leagues? Well, I can vividly remember sitting and watching Monday Night Football at a, a friend of mine's house that winter in December after having been the MVP of the Carolina League, after putting myself, you know, on the radar screen for the New York Mets and, and really for the first time really believing and knowing in my heart that, that I was going to be a Major League Baseball player after dreaming it and, and hoping for it and working towards that goal for, for so many years to, to be that close and to know, yeah, it was uh, sort of heart-stopping. Obviously, Gary... Uh, was, uh, you know, the probably the premier catcher in Major League Baseball at that time. Certainly had the most lucrative long-term contract of any player uh, in baseball at that time. So, yes, he did become a roadblock for me in my career. Uh, I learned a good bit from Gary, uh, but it was frustrating at times having to take a back seat and, and not being afforded uh, the, the number of opportunities to play that I, I really wished or hoped that I, I would get. And, and really during the prime of my career, I was backing him up. But uh, obviously Gary was a Hall of Fame player, uh, a good Christian man. I have more respect for him now, not so much now that he's passed. You know, God rest his soul, but um, he, he lived his life the right way off the field, and and uh, he was in the minority of our team during that time. And and uh, looking back, uh, you know, I, I respect that even more so today, uh, having lived uh, my life and gone through the the circumstances that I've gone through uh, over the years and, and, and the uh, trials and tribulations that I've faced looking back I wish I would have uh, would have uh, stayed uh, you know straight and narrow and, and to the you know and on the right path but uh, the temptations and uh, the war of uh, the bright lights and the fame fortune of New York City and all the trappings that go along with it as a major league player uh, unfortunately, uh, it failed me as it did many of my teammates uh, from time to time and, and distracted us as a team. And uh, We were not able to win the number of championships that I believe we, we could have won uh, looking back in hindsight. But uh, nonetheless, having said all that, we, we did uh, have a good run. We, we had some great teams. We won a lot of ball games. We had a lot of fun off the field. Uh, but uh, I know it's a different era now. I would have liked to see what our team could have accomplished had we all been uh, taking better care of ourselves and, and spent less time uh, uh, doing some of the things that we were doing. Uh, uh, not every one of us, but uh, a majority were, were, uh, were 
enjoying, uh, you know, after the game and, uh, and the evenings on the road and things of that nature. But uh, anyway, uh, I, was, I am forever grateful to have been a, a New York Mets baseball player. And uh, I love New York City. I still, to this day, uh, I have a, a, a different feel, a, a different energy uh, when I'm in New York than I've ever felt anywhere else. And, and I have great memories of my time in New York and as a, as a New York Mets. And uh, those uh, overshadow and overplay any negative memories that might come into mind or anything that. Uh, uh, maybe that I'm not as proud of as, uh, as, I, as I could be, but uh, my time in New York uh, was an amazing experience. And of course, with that, once again, John Pielli here with Barry Lyons. Now, you know, after after you end up leaving the Mets, you know, you end up uh, bouncing around to a couple different organizations. But what stands out, Barry, is the fact that from the years of uh, you know 1993 and 1994, you put up some very good numbers in the minor leagues. So it was very it was very evident that you had a lot left to offer. Uh, take us back to that time because that has to be frustrating to you because you're you're looking back at about eight to ten years since you last really played in, in the minors and you're back being being a regular in the minors but still producing numbers. Was it frustrating to you at all that you, you, you may have not gotten enough of a fair chance to, to prove what you can do on the field? Well, at the time it was and even, you know, for, for several years maybe after my career ended, uh, I looked back, at, you know, with maybe uh, frustration in mind and things of that nature. But, uh, being a born-again Christian, being someone who has uh, totally been transformed and rededicated my life to serving the Lord, uh, now looking back, I have no regrets. I, I am who I am, and I, I'm where I am today because of the life I led and the, and the, the opportunities that God gave me. And I didn't make the best of all of them. I didn't make all the right uh, choices, but uh, I made a lot of good choices. But Getting back in AAA during that time uh, was disappointing and not that I was in the major league, but it was also rewarding in the sense that I got a chance to play every day, which I never had that opportunity in, in New York or in the major leagues, uh, you know, during my time with the Mets, uh, except for the first um, couple of months of 1990. Uh, before I got injured and hurt my back. Uh, so getting a chance to play every day and having, uh, you know, uh, a burning desire to return to the major league again uh, and, and just, um, you know, uh, making the most out of my last chances, so to speak, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, getting to play every day at the AAA level, I, I hit my full power and put up uh, more, you know, as good a numbers or better numbers than I did when I was in the minor league, trying to fight my way and climb my way up the ladder. So uh, it was a great experience being back at AAA, but yeah, it was disappointing knowing that I was a major league player uh, and that I. If given the chance to be an everyday player during the height of the time of my career, I feel like, you know, I could have been a, uh, a top, top notch, you know, front line catcher for, for many years, but that did not happen. Uh, at this point in my life, I have no regrets. I have no 
uh, you know, ill feelings towards anyone or anything. I am just thankful to have had that experience. But uh, to be able to finish my career in the major leagues as I did in No question, and of course, uh, you know, you end up getting into managing a little bit for a couple of years after that. But yeah, what what what, what ends up at, you know, it's pretty interesting is that you know you end up moving back to to your hometown in 2002, and you know, you end up trying to bring professional baseball back to Mississippi's uh, coast where it really hadn't been since 1928. Uh, tell us a little bit about the efforts and, you know, how, how uh, you know, how, how you were able to try to bring baseball back to the Mississippi coast. Well, late in my career when I was playing AAA, as we were discussing earlier, we would, uh, you know, have road trips to New Orleans to play against the New Orleans AAA franchise which is only uh, a little over an hour away from my home here in Galaxy, Mississippi. And it was during that time, uh, it really became uh, very evident and very uh, clear in my mind that I wanted to see minor league baseball in my hometown community. So uh, before I drove back to New Orleans, because I was commuting to and from my condo here in Galaxy, while we were in New Orleans, and uh, I went to visit our mayor, Mayor A.J. Holloway, who, uh, believe it or not, is still our mayor today here in Biloxi. Really? Uh, with, with the idea that, uh, you know, the city could build a ballpark and bring minor league baseball here one day. Of course, in the early 1990s, that was not possible. Uh, but with the advent of uh, gaming uh, and the influx of uh, tax dollars that came from it, uh, the Mississippi Gulf Coast began to prosper and flourish, and uh, economic development was rampant and growth, and a lot of things were happening in a very positive way in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s when I moved home. And it was my goal to, to help bring minor league baseball to Biloxi, and we we had a master plan in place, and we had a site right on the uh, peninsula of Biloxi overlooking uh, the bay and the, and the Gulf of Mexico. And, of course, uh, three weeks before we were to present our, our plan to the city council, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit. And Hurricane Katrina, uh, I'm sure most of, of your listeners are, are aware of or heard of, uh, was the most devastating uh, uh, storm to ever hit the United States. And uh, I suffered greatly, as did hundreds and thousands of others, and uh, suffered terrible losses, uh, both personally, financially, uh, physically, and, and everything, in every way imaginable. But uh, uh, so the dream sort of died for a while, and and uh, several years later, it sort of rekindled again, and we made another push to try to get a, a 
stadium deal done and, and get a Southern League double-A franchise here. The economy went south. And anyway, they just uh, were very difficult to, to make it happen. But it's something that I believed in. And for 20 years, uh, I worked at it in some form or fashion. And finally, uh, about a year and a half, almost two years ago, the gentleman that I brought in, 10, 12 years ago, put a deal together, was able to secure a deal uh, to build a ballpark. They had state money, they had a casino property, which needed over to the city. Uh, we had a, a significant uh, bond uh, approved by the city of Biloxi Council. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, through a lot of trial and error and a lot of work, a lot of negotiation, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, uh, after 20 years, a deal was approved um, about uh, six months ago, and currently there is construction going on right now as we speak, and there will be a $36 million uh, minor league baseball stadium built in downtown Biloxi, just a few blocks from where I grew up. Uh, and uh, it's just uh, a dream come true. Uh, and I'm just awed by uh, what God is doing and how he has blessed me and blessed his community. And this is something that I wanted for my hometown and my community so that they can enjoy minor league baseball for generations to come. And, uh, it's uh, been a long road and, and uh, been a lot of highs and lows in between, but to know that uh, my dream was uh, realized, just like my dream as a child was to be a major league baseball player, my dream as an adult was to, to be uh, involved and be a leader in bringing in uh, minor league baseball to my hometown, and, and that dream has been realized as well. So. God has uh, blessed me in so many ways, and I'm just very thankful, very grateful, very humbled, and uh, proud of my career, proud that, uh, that uh, you know, we, we have this new minor league baseball stadium to, to enjoy minor league baseball, college baseball, high school baseball uh, for generations to come. Hey, listen, man, I, I could not have said any of that better myself. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, the hardships that you had to deal with with Hurricane Katrina and everything that ended up, you know, happening to you. But, you know, in the end, after all this the, this tough time and, you know, as much as, you know, you suffered, like you mentioned, financially, physically, um, you know, emotionally for everything that happened to you and your family, you know, in the end, you know, it looks like there is a, a sort of happy ending by bringing baseball back to your, your beloved city. There's more than a sort of a happy ending. It's an amazing uh, revelation. It's an amazing gift to this community, and I'm, I'm very thankful for But uh, it's not the ending. This is just the beginning. Uh, how I'm going to be involved in it, I don't know that where I fit, where I'm going to be, but my faith and trust is in the Lord, and, and uh, I just uh, uh, wake up each day just, just uh, excited for what the day brings and, and thankful to see this uh, beautiful ballpark coming out of the ground as we speak. And uh, knowing that uh, baseball fans in this community are going to be blessed to be able to, to drive just uh, a short short way to go and see minor league baseball 
uh, and see guys that they're going to see on TV within a year or two years playing right here uh, in my old neighborhood. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's uh, uh, an amazing story. Uh, sometimes uh, I, I, I want to pitch myself. I, I don't know that it's really sunk in uh, completely at this point once that ballpark's uh, completed and once uh, that first pitch is thrown. Uh, then maybe it'll, it'll really manifest itself in my mind and, and I'll, I'll know it's real and I'll be able to to really uh, express exactly how I feel. But I, I'm just uh, so thankful, so glad. Uh, and my life is uh, certainly not perfect. My life is, uh, is not free of, of struggles and, and difficulties. But uh, I have uh, a God that, that loves me and that uh, is there for me and will help me through any and all circumstances and, and difficulty. And uh, I just want to keep doing what he what He gives me and keep living my life to serve him and, and, and share his message and his word and, and what he can do uh, and share my testimony so that others uh they know him and, and, and let him uh, do for them what he has done for me. So I'm, I'm very blessed and I'm thankful for this opportunity, John. I appreciate you having me uh, as a guest and to share these experiences with you. Now listen, man, it means a lot just to, to, to hear it, and I'll tell you, you know, everything that you went through, is, you know, like you said, it's not it's not a happy ending, it's just the beginning, and best of luck to everything that happens with, you know, with the new baseball stadium, and uh, hopefully there's many, many, many more good times to come back. Amen. Thank you, John. I appreciate it, man. Great getting a chance to catch up there with Barry, and of course, great to see that things going, everything well in Bloxy, Mississippi, and the fact that there is going to be a baseball stadium there as professional baseball will return for the first time since 1928. And I think it's an outstanding story. And if there's anybody that deserves a little bit of good luck, it's Barry Lyons. Of course, everything that, you know, he went through both on the baseball field and of course the terrible, terrible occurrences of Hurricane Katrina and everything involved with that. But we're going to do right now is take a quick break. Be back right on the other side. Catch you up with everything going on in Bases Empty blog, JohnPLA.com, the whole thing. This is the Pass Ball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, brought to you by JohnPLA.com. I always wanted to work in sports. Kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We place thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Delisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And And we're we're your favorite tailgaters. tailgaters. 
Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the... Taste is empty, blah. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told, okay? Taste is empty, blah. Taste is empty, blah. Taste is empty, blah. Base is empty blog. Base is empty blog. Tailgaters. Welcome back. John Pielli, Pets Ball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network, brought to you, of course, by JohnPielli.com. I'm glad you could join me for this morning as we get into everything going on, both historically and conventionally, in the history of Major League Baseball. If you followed on a local front within the New York teams, you saw that the Subway Series in my opinion, reared its ugly head again. Uh, something we've seen for the last 16 years. It started in 1997. Actually, we're probably a little more than that as uh, you know, we're really almost finishing our second decade of uh, interleague play involved in Major League Baseball. And of course, uh, all the rival teams, the New York teams, the LA teams, the Chicago teams, the Texas teams, the Florida teams, all get a chance to play that little inter, interstate type of rivalry. And, of course, you got the Cardinals and the Kansas City Royals in Missouri, and it goes on and on from there. But uh, when we think of the Subway Series, as opposed to interleague baseball as a whole, we think of the history of the Subway Series. And, uh, of course, it went back many, many years before the New York Mets ever even became a franchise in Major League Baseball and involved the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York Giants, the New York Yankees, of course, the Dodgers and the Giants, the two New York's two National League franchises, and the years that they would uh, play against the New York Yankees and the, the legendary New York Yankees, the pennant-winning Yankees, the ones that were representing the American League in the World Series year in and year out. And, of course, the first ever Subway Series can be remembered in the year of 1921, when the New York Giants beat the New York Yankees, they did it again in 22 and in 23 with the Giants winning in 22. And of course, the New York Yankees winning their first World Series championship in 1923. And of course, was the first year of, of Yankee Stadium called the house that Ruth built. And of course, the Yankees would go on to win so many more championships, but would end up involving themselves in the Subway Series a couple more times. And the sad thing, if you're a big fan of the history of the New York Giants, because after 1923, um, the Yankees would beat the Giants again in 1936 and 1937, and the teams would meet again in 1951 for what would be the last time uh, while both teams were playing in New York. And, of course, the Brooklyn Dodgers end up involving themselves in the Subway Series for the first time in 1941, and then again in 1949, and then once again in 1952 and 1953, and then for the first time winning the World Series against the New York Yankees in 1955 before losing again in 1956. And of course, we know everything that happened after the 1957 season with not just the New York Giants moving to California and to San Francisco, but the Brooklyn Dodgers left the city of New York going to Los Angeles for the 1958 season and 
a couple years would go by before there is another New York team. And that's when the New York Mets came into the mix in 1962, where they've been ever since. And for all those years from 1962 until really the Mets became relevant in 1969 when they won the World Series, there was no talk about the thought of a Subway Series. Remember the Yankees in 62 won their last World Series, their last World Series they would win until the year of 1977, you know, about 63 and 64, the back-to-back pennants, where they lost, uh, at the time, Los Angeles Dodgers, and then the St. Louis Cardinals before not making it back to the Fall Classic until 1976 when they played the Cincinnati Reds, and of course we know about what happened in the 80s, and the 80s were probably a good decade if you were a Yankee fan looking to just see the team have a winning record, because if you followed the Yankees in the late 1960s and the early part of the 1970s, you saw that they had some bad teams. You didn't really have that in the 80s, but the one thing you didn't have was a World Series championship, making the World Series in 1981 against the Los Angeles Dodgers and Fernando Valenzuela, the whole thing. Then the Mets became good in the mid to late 80s. And you realized if you were a Subway Series guy, maybe an old timer that followed uh, the rivalry between the Giants and the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Yankees of the 1950s, there was really nothing existing between the New York Mets and the New York Yankees. And of course, the Subway Series, before it ever became a World Series, what happened on the field in 1997? Dave Malicki throwing a shutout for the New York Mets against the New York Yankees, and away we go. And, you know, it's been so many years. Of course, we remember the 2000 World Series where the Mets played against the Yankees, the only time that's ever happened. And, you know, for, for the fans of baseball in New York, once again, it's the Subway Series between the Mets and the Yankees. And uh, let's be honest, this is something that's played itself out for many, many years. Um, you know, even though you see it every year since MLB instituted interleague play in 1997, fans of the rival inner city baseball talking about how their favorite team is better than the other. It happens, like I said, in California, both in L.A. and the Bay Area, as well as Texas, Chicago, Missouri, and Florida. But there's only one Subway Series, like we just talked about, and it exists in New York. Now, if you read my article on Bases Empty blog, JohnPLA.com, you'll see that I, when I mentioned Subway Series, I didn't use a capital S in either Subway or Series. And I did that for a reason. It's common knowledge the series has lost its luster. But it's also known that the series is going to be a yearly one from year on out. Obviously, the Mets are more excited as an organization about the Subway Series than the Yankees, as they're likely to sell many more tickets for the couple games each year that the Yankees come in to City Field. Now, on the other side, I don't think you could say that the Mets are a huge draw for the Yankees, but For the city of New York to have a couple games between the Mets and the Yankees at Yankee Stadium is going to drive a bunch more fans to Yankee Stadium than would be normally. Now, is that going to be a big difference in the crowd? Not necessarily, because I think Yankee fans want to see the Yankees play whoever. But the fact that Mets fans will go to Yankee Stadium to see the Mets play the Yankees does have a little bit of an impact. But here's my problem with the whole thing. 
And, and, and I, I did touch on it a little bit and obviously talk about the series itself being overplayed year after year and how many times you're going to see it. I understand that. But here's my problem. You got TV cameras that are pointed at fans. And what are they looking for? What's the number one thing that they want to see? They want to see two proverbial fans standing next to each other. One wearing a Yankees jersey, the other a Mets jersey. The TV camera wants to see them bicker back and forth. One saying that the Yankees are better, the other saying they love the Mets. New York loves their sports teams, and what better way to show it for the city of New York than having Mets and Yankee fans debate which fan base has the better fans? I guess. Is it me or does it always seem that the fans that are picked out for these featured articles are the ones that could really care less in the first place? More than likely, they would do anything to get on TV and probably care less about baseball anyways. But this is what the Subway Series has come to. The sad thing about it is the fact that the Subway Series has distinguished itself with two distinct fan bases. Now, uh, the obvious statement could mean I'm talking about the Met fans and Yankee fans. But I'm not. I'm talking about the fans that are knowledgeable about their teams and baseball and the ones that really don't have a clue. Yankees fans know their favorite team has won 27 World Series championships, but some of them can't name half of them. Mets fans, well, listen, there's plenty that can't name half of the 20 managers the team has had in their history. But they're all lumped together because it's a Subway Series. You got the knowledgeable fans, you got the non-knowledgeable fans, whether they're Mets fans or Yankee fans. Let's understand that both fan bases have fans, and a good majority of them, that don't have a clue about what's going on in baseball. But they all get lumped in the same thing. Subway Series, everybody puts on their favorite team's hat, right? But all fans, whether they're real or not, get their moment in the spotlight. Yankee Stadium, City Field, get filled almost completely with people. But only half are real baseball fans, and the other half are as casual of spectators as you'll ever see. The true fans of either team, these the next four games or the four games you'll see every season, or maybe it'll be six games again, uh, they're just another series on the schedule. The Yankees have to keep pace with the teams in their own division, one in which they're expected to contend for a title. The Mets are trying to get themselves back together after a series of several bad games that they like to forget. Yet, many will state how it is so important that the Yankees make up for losing four straight games to the Mets last season. Others will say how big it is for the Mets to win to avenge the 2000 World Series title loss. People are hell-bent over the last two statements, and those do not have a clue and likely care little about baseball at all. Maybe the Subway Series was created for you people, the casual fans that really have no interest in the game of baseball. Uh, I'm sure they're going to have their entertainment like they always do, but as for the legitimate fans of each team, it this year is just another four games out of 162. John Pielli, Passball Show. MTR Radio Network. Uh, of course, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli as we keep the program interactive. Just so we could cover a little bit of everything this hour, I'm going to jump to a player that played well over 100 years ago. In fact, his career started about 140 years ago. 
1871 and lasted until 1898. And he really was one of the great players of the late 1800s. And that was Cap Anson, uh, Hall of Famer in 1939, just the fourth year of the Hall. And he hit 334 for his career, 3,435 career hits, 1,999 runs scored. And let's be honest, uh, as, as pure of a hitter as there was in the latter part of the 19th century. Now, only three times in his career, he failed to hit 300. And he played 27 years in Major League Baseball. One of, one of the seasons he didn't hit 300 was his last year of 1898. Now, of course, those numbers got him into Baseball's Hall of Fame, like I said. Um, Anson's plaque is pretty clear about how good of a player he was and one of the pure hitters like I said uh, of the pretty much the pre-dead ball era let's be honest I mean the, the 1800s were an era of baseball that doesn't get a lot of consideration when we talk about all-time great players but it's safe to say that Cap Anson was probably one of the best in his time now one thing that was very common in that time and was common obviously later on was the amount of racism that was involved, not just in baseball, not just in all sports, but in, in all aspects of life. Um, you know, African-American, the black people, in addition to players, were all treated substandardly. And there were many that did not want to see that change. And Cap Anson was a pure example of that. Uh, you know, you could maybe add to his Hall of Fame plaque the fact that he may have prevented former Major League catcher Moses Fleawood Walker uh, an opportunity to come back and play in the Major Leagues after he was given his release late in the 1884 season. Now, Walker for years was declared the first African-American player to play in the Major Leagues when he made his debut on May 1st of 1884. However, research has shown that a guy by the name of William Edward White played one game for the Providence Grays in 1879, thus becoming the first African-American player, the first black to play in Major League Baseball history. Playing for the Toledo Blue Stockings in 1884, Walker got into 42 games. He had 263, two doubles, three triples, and 152 at-bats. While he wasn't spectacular, the league average that season was just 240. And remember, we're in the pre-dead ball era where, you know, hitters for the most part did not hit for ridiculous averages. You know, a guy like Cap Anson, as well as he hit over the course of his career, guys like Sliding Billy Hamilton, like that, uh, were not the norm. And uh, 240 was the league average in 1884, and it was proof that Walker was an above-average hitter. In addition, Moses Fleawood Walker was a catcher, but not just any catcher, a catcher that played with subpar and limited equipment and thus taking a beating behind a dish. But it was an exhibition game in 1884 where Anson tried to make a stand. He said he would refuse to field his Chicago team if Walker was on the opposition. Anson would later rescind his notion and play the game with Walker in the lineup. Walker's manager at the time was William Bolts, who insisted that Moses Fleetwood Walker play in this game. And at the time, Anson did not feel there was enough power to keep a black man from playing, though that's what he wanted. After Walker was let go, simply because he was black, 
he would continue to play in a minor league minor league type games for Waterbury of the South New England League and for Cleveland of the Western League in 1885. He again played for Waterbury in 1886 and 1887 before playing for the Syracuse Stars in 1888 and 1889. In fact, in 1888, he was part of the Syracuse team that won the league championship. His final official appearance came in 1891 at age 34 for a of the Wisconsin League. It was known that John Ward of the New York Giants was interested in signing Walker. Now, by that time, Cap Anson had a lot more power, and Anson's opinion was perpetrated throughout the league, and he was able to keep Walker from being signed. Perhaps had Anson been a little less persistent, the whole history of baseball could have changed. Unfortunately, 60 years would go by before a black baseball player would play in the major leagues, which I've chronicled on a series of past ball shows, and we've spoken a lot about Jackie Robinson, and last year we touched a little bit about some of the racists of 1947, but here, you know, is an understanding that racism was not something new, was something that existed for many, many years, and obviously through the years of slavery and the Civil War and past the Civil War, but You know, I think a lot of us think about society, and I touched on this last week, so I'm not going to get too much into it this week, but, you know, you think about how society probably can get better in the dealings with race, but if you go back to even the 1960s and, of course, the 1940s when we're talking about Jackie Robinson, integration, you know, the civil rights movement, which, you know, happened after that, but even in the years of the post-Civil War, how you know African American people, not just ball players, were treated substandard, and you know I, I think I think it's more of a responsibility to call out those who share those type of views. Now, if you share those type of views now, you're obviously going to be treated differently than you would have back then. And it's obviously in the late 1800s, if you didn't like uh, the fact of somebody's skin color, you could probably talk about it amongst the group. You could probably talk about it in public. And even though some people are going to be upset by it, you understood that your point was going to be allowed to be spoken. Now, you know, you're in a minority if you feel that way. And I'm proud to say society has gotten to a point where very few feel that way. And it's good. It's showing that in regards to rights and, uh, you know, treatment of equality, well, even if we're not talking about race, whether it's religion or sexual orientation or gender, you know, that we are kind of as close to being equal in regards to treatment as ever before. And, uh, you know, to call out a guy like Cap Anson, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to say Cap Anson was the only one. I'm not going to say that Cap Anson was necessarily a bad man because he felt the way he did. But I think it has to be noted that he could have had a very positive hand in the history of not only Major League Baseball, but in civil rights. Because if you look at what happened with Jackie Robinson in 1947 and when he broke the color barrier and what that did to set off the civil rights movement, maybe had it not been for Jackie Robinson, we still may have gone years and years before equal rights were accepted for everybody to have in this country. And maybe had Cap Anson or somebody else, maybe another high prominent player of the late late 1800s to say that Moses Fleetwood Walker, Fleet Walker, was a good enough ball player that could help his team to win. 
Maybe if there was a Branch Rickey in the late 1800s that says, listen, I want to win a ball game. Maybe if John Ward, John Montgomery Ward, could have spoken up and say, listen, I don't care what anybody says. You can blackball me. You can do whatever you want. But I want to field the best team possible. So I want Fleet Walker on my team. If somebody had stood up then, then maybe the whole history, not just of African-American players playing in Major League Baseball, but for the whole racial problems and inequalities that we as a country dealt with for so many years, could have been lessened. And obviously it wouldn't have been saved, but it could have changed the whole history as we look back at all this time. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I want to spend a couple minutes talking about what a lot of others have talked about, and that is the emergence of Jose Abreu with the Chicago White Sox. Of course, the latest in the Cuban-born players coming over to the United States, signing major league contracts for Abreu. It's a six-year, $68 million deal with the Chicago White Sox and a, a team that was in a little bit of a transition. You look at the fact that Paul Konerko is probably in his last year and uh, really outside of Adam Dunn, who is a hit-or-miss kind of guy, they don't really have anybody aboard that could really carry that offense. And Abreu has done just that. He's played in every game this year. He's hit 15 home runs. He's driven in 41 runs to this point with a 603 slugging percentage and his 103 uh, OPS plus, which all lead the American League. So I think we're going to see a continuance in the trend of the top Cuban position players come over here. And, you know, you wonder why a lot more teams weren't as aggressive with Jose Abreu, because I think it's a little interesting to look at. You know, the guy did nothing but put up numbers in Cuba. He's come over here and he's fit in just fine. And, uh, you know, you, you wonder how many more players are going to come over here. And uh, I think more teams should be more cognizant of the fact that these players, you know, for whatever reason can hit and they could hit in Cuba and they come over here and they become right part of the center of the lineup. Um, you see what Yasiel Puig is doing right now, and obviously the sky is the limit for him. And I think Jose Abreu is a guy that should be an all-star from year in and year out with the Chicago White Sox. But big thanks to Barry Lyons for being part of this hour. Second hour, I got interviews to play with former Yankee second baseman Jerry Lumpy, as well as former Reds pitcher Ted Weehan. See you in five minutes. But before I take a break, I do want to make a mention of the parity over in Major League Baseball, which at one point last week, you had exactly 11 teams with a winning record, 11 teams with a losing record, and eight, count that, eight teams with exactly a 500 record. Just shows that nobody's really running away with anything, and there's really not too many teams that you could say are legitimately out of it. That's why this is a marathon, and you know, it's interesting to see what happens over the next couple months. Tune in to John Pielli's basketball show. 